I'm excited this morning. We are in our uh, Better Treasure uh, series, and we're navigating uh, through the back half of the Sermon on the Mount, where we are looking at what it means in our life when we look at the kingdom of God and see it as the greatest treasure of our life. And I think that's what Jesus is laying out for us in, in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, is how do we make the kingdom of God the treasure? And when we do that, what does it then, how does it shape everything that we do? And so two weeks ago, we saw how when we make Jesus the treasure, um, it absolutely transforms how we see our money and our possessions. Jesus said, don't lay up for yourself treasures on earth. Lay them up in heaven because where your treasure is, there your heart will be, and you can't serve two masters, right? So he's teaching us there. And last week, we looked at how seeing him as the better treasure and seeking him first is the primary weapon we have against battle, in the battle against anxiety and worry. And this week, we're going to look at how seeing the treasure of Jesus and the kingdom of God um, speaks into and informs and shapes um, the issue of judging one another. And we're going to be in Matthew chapter 7. And what I want us to discover this morning is really um, how this passage in Matthew chapter 7 isn't so much about being judgmental as much as it is about seeing ourselves clearly. That's really what Matthew 7 is all about. And listen, the ability to see clearly is very, very important. I joke about it all the time. I've joked with you guys before. When I turned 40, Carrie and I were in Dallas and we go into a Barnes and Nobles and I walk over, uh, Richard, to the rack of readers that are right there, these, these things right here. And I go, oh, this is going to be hilarious. I'm going to put these on and look all dumb and weird. And I put them on and I opened the book and I went, oh dear Lord, I can see. And um, I couldn't see. I didn't know I couldn't see. I didn't know why I could read for eight seconds and my eyes start closing and watering. I couldn't, I put these readers on and I was, look, look at all these beautiful letters. They have edges and I can read. And so I've been wearing these ever since. Being able to see is really important. And so I have um, a couple of pictures that I'm going to put up and I just want to test your ability to see. All right. So these are going to play tricks a little bit. And so here's the first one. I'm going to put this one up. Which circle is bigger? Which of those two orange circles is the biggest? All right, say it confidently. Which one's bigger? One on the right? Who votes right? Who thinks they're the same size? All right, good job. They're actually the same size. Uh, but, but the optical illusion of the larger and smaller circles changes our vision. Now, the next one I'm going to put up, I just want you to let your eye kind of float around the screen. So let's do that. All right, you're not on LSD. Do you kind of see... You see how those dots feel they're kind of waving and moving? Believe it or not, they're actually standing still. Nothing on the screen is moving. It's an optical illusion of how they're spaced and turned, and it's uh, kind of trippy. And so um, that's an optical illusion, all right? The next one I want you to see, go ahead. All right, what color do you see in the circles? What different colors do you see? I know you don't feel confident to yell out because now you're, you know I'm going to trick you right? They look pink and yellow and green and that sort of thing, right? The truth is the yellow, the circles are all the same color. It's the colors around them that cause our eye to see them wrongly, right? And so our eyes are naturally bent to see these things wrongly. Uh, I've got one more that I want you to see that you're going to see wrongly. Look at this. Look at that. That's just, that's not a person with an alpaca head. That's some, that's, uh, that's just, first of all, some nonsense because 
I don't know who gets that close to an alpaca, but this person did, and uh, I just thought, yeah, I'm seeing that all kinds of wrong. And so the point is, our vision is naturally bent to see those pictures wrongly, and I want us to see very clearly what Jesus is teaching us this morning. And here's why, because Matthew 7, chapter, verse 1, is one of the most quoted and most misunderstood verses in the entire Bible. It is one of the most quoted, but one of the most misunderstood verses in the Bible. It's this, judge not, that you be not judged. Oh, the world loves to quote this verse, don't they? They love it. It's the only verse they've got memorized. They, unless they've gone to a baseball game and seen a John 3.16 sign, this is the only verse the world takes time to memorize. And here's why. Because those who are not believers outside of the world, they hold this verse up as a picket sign over their life that says, no one gets to make any evaluations of my life or my choices at all. That's, that's what they do, right? They take this sign and says, no one gets to be discerning or, or evaluate what is going on, what I say, what I do, my motives, nothing. Jesus said, do not judge so you don't get to judge me, right? So they hold this as a sign over their life. Um, I loved this verse when I was a kid, by the way. It was one of my favorites because when my brother or my sister tried to tell me I was doing something wrong, I would hit them with the knockout punch of Matthew 7, 1, I promise you. I'd be like, nah, you don't get to judge me. Do not judge because you're going to be judged. And I didn't have the whole thing memorized, but my point was you don't get to tell me what to do. But here's something else, though. It isn't just people outside the family of faith who love this verse. Inside the family of faith, we use this verse. And what we do, and don't lean away from me, lean toward me, we set this up as a goal line defense in our life so that no one gets to hold us accountable, so that no one gets to speak into our motives or our choices or the sin issues in our life. And we may have things going on in our life, but when somebody has the courage to speak into the thing that we're struggling with, we'll often hold this up and go, you don't get to judge me, right? And so this is one of the most quoted and most misunderstood verses in the entire Bible. And so I want us to to see this clearly. I want us to see Matthew 7. Before we dive into these other verses, I want us to see this verse clearly because Matthew 7, 1 cannot simply mean no one is ever allowed to make a judgment. It can't mean that. It can't mean that um, calling wrong, wrong, or sin, sin, or calling sin to repentance is somehow off limits. Because if it means that, we got a problem. We got a massive problem. First of all, we got a problem with the Bible. Here's why. Because in order to hold that opinion and to hold that view, you have to forfeit all the rest of God's word. Right? Because guess what? The Bible is a book of judgments. That's what it is. It is a book that is filled with judgments. The Bible sets standards. It sets expectations. It defines boundaries. It tells us what is sin. It tells us what is righteous. It tells us what pleases God and what doesn't please God. And if we are going to hold on to the view that says, nobody gets to judge me, then we have to ignore every prophet that God sent to the king to call out sin or sent to the people of God to call out sin. We have to ignore Paul, who called out sin in the church, called out sin um, in, in, in his brothers in Christ. We have to, above that, ignore Jesus, who called out sin in the Pharisees. 
and judged sin in the temple. You remember that day when he ran him out? He called out sin in the woman at the well. Go call your husband. He called out sin in his own disciples. And this is the same Jesus who in John chapter 7 said these words, Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. So it cannot simply mean no one gets to judge. No one gets to address wrong things. So what does it mean? What is it that Jesus is trying to teach us this morning? Well, let's read these verses, and then we're going to dive in. Matthew chapter 7, let's start again in verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clarity to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Just like the rest of the entire Sermon on the Mount, the whole thing, Jesus is not just addressing the issue of judging. Above that, he's addressing the motives of the heart, the conditions of our heart. That's what he's, that's what he's really speaking into. He's saying this isn't just about the act of judging. It's about the motive for judging. It's about the spiritual condition of the heart that is judging. And it's about um, the, my righteousness shaping how you do this. And when we find ourselves in a position to make a judgment in someone else's life, we have to first see ourselves clearly and then judge graciously. That's what I think the point is. And here's why we need this teaching, because we are prone to judge wrongly. (laughs) It's just how we're wired. We judge wrongly. We do. We, uh, we jump to conclusions, we assume, um, we are short-sighted, we miss the point. We, we need this teaching. There are several ways that we tend to judge wrongly. There's four that came to mind. There's probably more, but I want you to see these four. Here's four ways that we tend to do this wrongly. First of all, we tend to judge presumptuously. Presumptuously. What does that mean? It means we are assuming we know someone else's motives. So we take the little bit that we see on the outside and we make a, a, a presumption about what is going on on the inside. We, we, we just presume, right? We judge self-righteously. Oof, I don't like this one. Here's what this is. and We do this to one another in the church. Self-righteous judgment is when we take non-biblical standards and lay them on someone else. It's when we take our perspective and make it the ultimate standard for somebody else's life. And essentially what we've done is we've taken things that are not essential and we've made them essential. So we judge self-righteously the way people spend their time, how they raise their children, what they do as hobbies, how they dress, how they worship. We take things that are not essential and we make them essential. And if they aren't holding the standard of our perspective, we judge them. 
I know it's super quiet in here. Am I right or am I wrong? <laughs> right? We do this. Here's another way we do this. We judge hypocritically. You're going to have to lean in with me for a moment because this is going to come on and get in our backyard and start reading our journal. Um, judging hypocritically is where we are more bothered by the sin in someone else's life than we are broken over the sin in our own. We're just going to sit with that for a minute. It is where we are more bothered by the sin in somebody else's life than we are broken over our own. And what I want to tell you is God's people, we tend to absolutely devour one another with that kind of judgment. That's just what we do. We eat our own. And that's not God's standard for the kingdom. That is not how we do this. There's another way that we tend to judge, and that's just mercilessly. We judge without mercy. We don't let grace and mercy speak into the moment. What we do is we analyze someone's position and then just dismiss the person. Right? We just assume they are beyond hope and unworthy of relationship. So the question is, how do we then reshape our vision of this issue? God has called us to live as difference makers in the world. By the way, this is how, this is how uh, the, the religious leaders judged. They judged presumptuously. They judged self-righteously, hypocritically, and without mercy. It's how they judged Jesus, right? They would, they would look at Jesus and go, isn't that the dude that eats with sinners? Forget that guy. He isn't doing what we think he should be doing. He isn't, he isn't living the way we think he should live. And they would judge this way, but guess what? We're just like them. <laughs> just like them. And we need this teaching, and we need God to shape our vision. So how do we avoid judging like that? And how do we bring the gospel and the better treasure of the kingdom to bear on this issue? There's three things I want to put in front of you this morning. Here's the first one. For us to to walk this way and to judge the way God has called us to judge and evaluate, um, we have to see ourselves and others through the lens of the gospel. You have to see yourself and others through the lens of the gospel. All along the way here in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has been teaching us how his righteousness in us changes everything. That's what the whole Sermon on the Mount is about. How when we get the righteousness of Christ and treasure the kingdom of God, it absolutely transforms our life, which is why he said in Matthew 5.20, which is the heartbeat of the whole Sermon on the Mount, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. What's he saying there? He's saying you have to have a righteousness outside of you if you're going to walk in this kingdom lifestyle. And so this whole sermon is about what happens when the righteousness of Christ gets in us. So look at what he says in verse 1 and 2 again. He says, judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Again, this isn't saying not to make judgments of right or wrong ever. It's not what it's saying. When we get at the heart of it, what Jesus is saying is do not live with a judgmental and critical spirit. That's the heart of what he's getting at. Right? In other words, don't let the character of your life be marked by finding fault in others. 
Don't let the character of your life be marked this way. He is reminding us of some important things. The first is, listen, we aren't anyone's final judge. (laughs) The buck in somebody else's life never stops with us. Here's the other thing he's teaching us. Judgment's like a boomerang. Guess what? It's coming back. It's coming back. It's like a boomerang. Paul was dealing with this issue in the church at Rome. They were treating each other this way, self-righteously, hypocritically. And he said this in Romans 15, excuse me, 14, verse 10. Why do you pass judgment on, on your brother? Are you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Paul is calling us here to live in full recognition that we will all stand before God and we will all give an account of our lives, which means we all need Jesus. And when we stand there, we will be completely dependent on the gospel. Nothing else will do in that moment other than the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that shapes how I see myself. That's what it means to see yourself with a gospel lens. There's two things I want you to see there. To see ourselves through the gospel lens, you got to do two things. The first is this. You have to see your own sin. Ooh, that's hard, seeing your own sin. But I love Romans 3.23 because it absolutely levels the playing field for all humanity, doesn't it? For all of us have sinned, all of us, and fall short of the glory of God. So that when I am talking to someone else, about a sin issue in their life, when I'm helping someone and dealing with a mistake they've made, I have to be painfully aware that the sin issue they have is the sin issue I have. The sinful fruit that I see in their life is born out of the same rotten seed that lives in my heart. Do you you hear what I'm saying? John Owen said, the seed of every sin lives in every heart. Boy, that's critical that we take hold of that. When you look at someone else's life and you see the fruit of sinful behavior, never forget the seed of that absolutely lives inside of you. It just does. We have to see our own sin. Here's the other thing we have to do. By the way, Some of the most dangerous words a believer can utter are this. I would never let that happen to me. You know what the enemy hears when you say that? He hears an invitation. He hears an invitation to come punt the front door of your heart in and absolutely demolish your integrity and your purity. To destroy your witness and your walk. Every person in this room is a breath away from the worst sinful condition you've ever seen develop in the heart of another person. A breath, a moment away. That's all. That's that's it. So we have to see our sin, right? We have to see it. Then we have to see what our sin deserves and what Jesus did for us. 
If I'm going to see myself through the lens of the gospel, I have to see what my sin deserves and what Jesus did for me. So what does my sin deserve? Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. That's what I deserve. I did not get some version of sin that just deserves a slap on the wrist. I, you did not get some version of sin that just means you should get probation. All of us have sinned, and the wages of every sin in every heart is death, physical, spiritual, eternal. But what did Jesus do about it? The gift of God, then, is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, which means what I deserve, I didn't get. I deserve death. I got Jesus. I have to see myself. I have to see my sin, what it cost Christ. And I want you to hear me say this. I think too often we lose our wonderment of the cross because we've diminished the wickedness of our condition. If every day of your life isn't spent absolutely astounded by the cross of Jesus, it's because you have forgotten what it meant to be lost and what it meant to be a sinner. And you have forgotten what sin actually did and what it cost God to make you his child. The way I treasure Jesus is I remember what he did to make me his own. I've got to see myself through this lens. I've got to see my sin. I've got to see what my sin cost God to deal with it, what he did, what it deserved, but what I received. God showed his love for us in Romans 5, 8, and that while we were still sinners, what happened? Christ died for us. He died for us. We have to see this. I love what John chapter 3, 17 and 18 said. It said that, uh, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Hmm. God has not condemned us based on what we deserve. Anybody in here a little bit thankful for that? But instead, he has saved us from condemnation because of something else someone else did on our behalf. God didn't send his son into this world to condemn the world. He sent his son into this world in order that the world through him might be saved. And whoever believes in him is not condemned. So here's the question. How could I then condemn someone that Jesus died to redeem? If Jesus died for the world, then who am I to condemn what he came to redeem? We've got to see ourselves and others through the lens of the gospel. Amen? Here's the second thing we've got to do. You've got to remove your sin before addressing someone else's got to remove your sin. Look at verse 3. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is this log in your own eye, you hypocrite. Don't you love it when Jesus just goes right at us? <laughs> Ooh. First, take the log out of your own eye. I want you to notice Jesus didn't say, hey, if you happen to have a log in your eye, I want you to deal with it. Right? Just in case maybe you find yourself toting a big log of sin in your face, I want you to address it. It's not what he said. He didn't say if. He assumes it's there. He knows it's already there. 
And by the way, your, your translation may say a speck or a log or a moat or a beam or a splinter or a plank. The point is this. They're all made of the same stuff. They're all made of sin. And Jesus is helping us understand that our vision of others and our assessment of their lives and their choices is dangerously obstructed by our own sin. Your vision of someone else's life is dangerously obstructed by the sin in your own life. He says, how can you say to your brother, hey, let, let me get that speck out of your eye when you've got a log in your own eye? Our sin is like a dark diseased filter that perverts everything we see. And when we try to speak into someone else's life through that obstruction of vision because of our sin, we only bring hurt, not healing. Think, think about it like this. So imagine you went to the optometrist, right? You're at the eye doctor, and you've got a you, your vision's hindered a little bit. Maybe you got a little cataract that's formed, and they got to address that. It's not a major deal, but you've got kind of a, a small uh, hindrance in your vision. So you sit in the chair, you lean your head back, and the doctor says, "Okay, you ready? We're about to get started. I'm going to take this laser, and I'm going to get that cataract out of your eye." And so he says, "Are you ready?" "Yeah, I'm ready." And then he grabs the laser, but before he puts it in your eye, he puts blinders on himself right? He puts blackout glasses on himself, turns that laser on and says, here we go. No, I think you're going to stop just a minute. I, I don't think you're going to shoot those. I don't think you're going to get all Luke Skywalker up here in my eyeballs with those blinders on. You're not doing it. What's the point? He's about to cause infinitely more damage than he is about to heal. And when we bring this measure of judgment and being critical in people's lives without having dealt with our own sin, we always cause more damage. And we never bring them to healing. Why? Because we're not walking in the healing. And if you aren't walking in the healing of being forgiven, of being made new, of being washed clean, of being, ref, uh, of being renewed, of being sanctified, of being justified, if you aren't walking in the daily rhythm of forgiveness, how will you ever bring somebody to the healing of Christ? This is why David begged in Psalm 51, Create in me a clean heart, O oh God, and renew a right spirit within me. It's why he begged that God would deal with his sin. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. What is he saying? God, I need you to deal with my sin. Why? For verse 13, then once you've dealt with my sin, then and only then can I teach, teach transgressors your ways. And then sinners will return to you. What did David say? I can't lead anybody anywhere if I haven't dealt with the sin in my life. But you've called me to teach. You've called me to lead. I'm the king of this nation and they need a shepherd who will walk them toward God. How do I do that? You got to create in me a clean heart. You got to renew a right spirit within me. You got to restore joy from my salvation. You've got to fill me with your Holy Spirit. We have to deal with our sin, remove it. Does that mean you have to be perfect? No, it means you have 
to be in a spiritual rhythm of repentance. Repentance is a rhythm. It's like bouncing a basketball. Because sin is a rhythm, isn't it? I don't know about your life. It comes knocking in my life every day. Every day. It's a rhythm. I can count on it. So if sin is a rhythm, repentance better be. It has to be a rhythm. Walking in that spirit of confession and repentance. And dealing with our sin is critical because... Jesus called us to be difference makers. He said, you're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. I am setting you apart to shine the light of my glory and my holiness into the darkness of people's lives. So if we're going to do that, we have to see them and ourselves in the gospel. We have to deal with our sins so that we can do this next thing, which is in love, walk with them toward redemption. To in love, Walk with them toward redemption. Jesus said, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. What is the point? That God has called us to be a part of someone's redemption story. Salt and light are difference makers, and he has called us to walk with somebody or some people toward redemption. And listen, redemption is always the goal of gospel judgment. There is no such thing as pointing out a sin in someone's life just for the sake of pointing it out. Now, my flesh wants to do that. My flesh wants to point it out because when I point it out, I feel a little better about the nonsense going on in my own heart. But in the kingdom vision, in the righteousness of Christ, there's no such thing as pointing out sin for the sake of pointing out sin. There is only identifying and shining the light of holiness on it for the sake of moving them toward redemption and walking with them in love toward redemption. I've gotten this wrong so many times. So many times. Probably none more often than when in raising my children. Probably none more often than there. I'm going to tell you, it's humbling to stand up here and talk about all these amazing things we should do and knowing my sons are back there going, "Mm -hmm. (laughs) mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I get it wrong. I bring a machete sometimes to a moment that just needs a scalpel. It just needs a little adjustment. I'm throwing hand grenades in a moment that just needs my arm around somebody, a little guidance. Anybody else? Here's why it's an issue for me. Because sometimes I get focused on just changing behavior and not shaping the heart. So parents, I want you to hear me for just a moment. God did not call you to manage behavior. He called you to shape hearts. The proverb says, um, the heart is the wellspring of life. It all comes from there. Luke's in chapter 6, I believe, says, out of the overflow of the heart the mouth speaks, which means if we're going to address issues in our children, it has to always be pointing them to the only one who can change a heart. So I know right now, so I want you to just, parents right now, if you are in a difficult season with your children and you have a child that is rebelling against God, rebelling against you, hear me. 
The goal is not to change what they're doing. The goal is to let Jesus change who they are. And then everything else will change. Don't know who that was for. So how do we do this? I see it's 1045. (laughs) I told y'all I had a lot. How do we do this? If we're going to judge in this way, graciously, lovingly, through the lens of the gospel, with redemption in view, what, what do we need to do? Here's the first thing you got to do. you got to pray. You have to pray. I believe it was E.M. Bounds who said, we should never speak to a person about God until we've spoken to God about that person. we got to pray. we got to draw circles around people and beg God to give them a new nature. All right? You have to meet them where they are. Listen, not where you want them to be, where they are. Not every person is ready to receive every truth. And hear me, people do not want to be talked down to. They want to be seen and respected. And we have to stop letting our political differences and our social distances disqualify us from our spiritual obligation. If you cannot have a gospel, grace-filled conversation with someone who sees the world different than you, that is not a them issue. It is a you issue. Just want everybody just know there's going to be some Democrats in heaven. (laughs) They're getting in, okay? They're going to make it. Plenty of them. There's going to be some liberals sneak in there. And if you've disqualified them for relationship based on how they see the world politically and socially, what you've actually done is disqualified yourself from the spiritual obligation God has put you in their life to see accomplished. So what do you do? You meet them where they are. Does that mean you lower your standard of holiness? No, it just means you stop making things that aren't essential, essential. That's all it means. All right, moving on. We got to recognize this, that the goal is not to persuade them to think like us. The goal is conversion. Are you with me? The goal, this is hard. The goal is not that they would see everything the way I see it. The goal is that they would see Jesus. That's the goal. So in these hard conversations with coworkers, with relatives, when you're watching 24 hours of news that is unrelenting, and it is absolutely shaping and, and clouding how you see this world. Remember this, the goal is not to persuade somebody to think like you. The goal is to see them converted and to see Jesus as the better treasure. That's it. That's how we got to bring this. All right. So, my prayer is, as you live as salt and light, as you live as a difference maker, as you love your spouse, as you raise your children, as you go to work, as you go to the ball field, as you see how other people are living their life, that you would first see yourself through the lens of the gospel, that you would then deal with your own sin before you speak into theirs, but that you would then in love graft in and be a part of their redemption story, moving them toward the glad forgiveness you have found in Christ.
That's the goal.